Mission log, stardate 83.90. We're in the third month of our Vulcan exile, and it was Dr. McCoy with a fine sense of historical irony who decided on a name for our captured Klingon vessel. And like those mutineers of 500 years ago, we too have a hard choice to make. Stardate 1986. How on earth can we save the future? The catastrophe in the future can only be averted by a journey into Earth's past. The movie is Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. This is the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast. Hello podcast fans and welcome to this very special edition of the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast or possibly the Silver Screen podcast depending where you're watching it. Uh, as has become the norm, uh, this is like the third time we've done this, when we do a series of the Hit or Miss Star Trek we always end by reviewing a movie uh, which relates to the theme in question and this particular uh, series we've been doing time travel so we naturally thought we'd end with a review of Star Trek the one with the... no, oh, my, my apologies. That's better. Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home, not the one with the wings. So, so yeah, we're going to be reviewing that. <laughs> That's what it's officially called, yeah. So we're going to be reviewing that, and uh, as I said, as we have been doing, it will go up a couple of days early on the Silver Screen Podcast channel, but uh, it will be available as an extended version on the Trek channel as usual to end this uh, third series, which, which, as I said, is time travel related. Ah, so, um. We did sort of see on a previous episode we were going to be joined by the same crew that we had for the top 10 Trek films. Unfortunately, Adrienne wasn't able to make it at the last minute, which is terrible, but let's be honest, it's in keeping with the way things have been going for this series <laughs> with our guests and our look. So it seems oddly fitting in a way, but uh, no, it was a le genuinely legit reason she had to work. And um, she has, I did say we still will... Uh, you know, I've got a couple of notes and we'll still give her favourite character moment lying conclusion and, uh, you know, put her score into the overall score so that it's counted because it's not her fault, really. <laughs> so, But we are here as uh, as just a threesome. Who were. Uh, I am your host, well, one of your hosts, Mike. I'm joined, as always, by our second host, DK. Greetings. And we are joined once again by, from the top 10 Star Trek films and an Encounter at Farpoint episode and various bits, uh, my good friend, Stephen Brown. Welcome, Brownie. Hello there. Hello. Hello, old man. How are you doing? Not bad at all. Happy <laughs> I know you've been out LARPing for uh, most of the weekend, so yes. you have fun. Touch tired. Touch tired. I touch I wouldn't because I was a bad guy, so, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we maybe, you know, Ruined a few character moments for people, but you know, that's what most of us do. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, the three of us are here to review, as I said, Star Trek for the Witch We've all watched it, uh, and I have already annoyed these two by bragging about how good it looks in 4K. That's the only time I'll mention it in the official review, but yes, it does, just so everyone knows. Uh, so, um, as I say, we will, uh, we're not going to have the usual sections that we have on the Hit or Miss Star Trek, because as, as when we always do, 
a movie, it will break down differently and we'll do it the way that we do our film reviews over on Silver Screen. If you're not following that, please do. I'll put a link in the description. Uh, so we will basically do a behind the scenes little bit of uh, sort of background information, then jump into our review, which will break down into just random sections like writing, direction, acting. Uh, it's free form conversation, so it doesn't really have to have any sort of chronological order. Uh, we'll just sort of go where the conversation will hopefully take us. And then as I already mentioned, we'll end with our favorite character moment and line, conclusion and score. And I do have a little bit of feedback from the audience on this film, which, uh, as you would imagine, is universally hated. It's really not. So, uh, yeah, um, without any further ado, then I'm going to throw over to uh, my other host, DK. Uh, DK, you're going to take us into the behind the scenes section. And would you like some background music if you are? Oh, why not? Go for it. Okay. Let's see. What shall we pick for you for it? Something uh, sleazy. I like the sound of interspace. Let's go. There we are. How's that? That's suitably sleazy. I can I can deal with that. All right. Uh, obviously, you know it's been out quite a while, and obviously the uh, the making of is well known to quite a lot of people. So if you if you've got anything else, feel free to join in. Uh, but I'm going to start. Not only was the movie originally intended to be a sequel to 84's Search and Spot and an end to the trilogy that begins with Wrath of Khan, but also as a vehicle for the then very much in demand Eddie Murphy. Mm. Murphy was supposedly, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, an avid Trekkie and wanted to join the franchise. Screenwriters Peter Crikes and Steve Meerson put together a script featuring Murphy as an English teacher with an obsession for the UFO phenomenon. A sequence of this script would see the bird of prey decloaking above a, a football field during the Super Bowl, with everyone, apart from Murphy's character, believing it to be part of the halftime show. Now, thankfully, it never came to pass as Murphy was dissatisfied with the script and instead dropped out to make Paramount's other feature at the time, The Golden Child, leaving the present-day protagonist role to be filled by Catherine Hicks. Indeed. I did read that he was going to also be the um, the, the Plexicorp scene. He would have been the guy that they kind of give that that formula to. So, yeah. It kind I'm of quite sure how that would have tallied, to be honest. But... Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. It, it would have probably ended up a lot like Superman 3, where they just shoehorned Richard Pryor in for terrible comedy. <laughs> oh, actually, I could get on board with something like that. You know what I think of Superman 3? You would. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Shatner was apparently reluctant to return to the role of Kirk after Trek 3, which led to producer Hart Bennett originally floating the idea of a prequel set during the cruise of Cagney Deaths. Yeah. But Shatner was persuaded to join the movie, not only with a substantial pay rise, but on, on the proviso that he himself would get to direct the next movie out of, should this one do well. Fortunately, this one did do well. Not so fortunate with the movie that resulted from this contract. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Though looking back, one wonders if Shatner really would have gone through with uh, not appearing, or was he testing the waters to see how his demands would have been met after Nimoy acquired the director's chair for Trek 3? Yeah, I think that's probably the case, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Now, while attempting to find the uh, nuclear vessels, Chekhov and Uhura find themselves uh, stood on the street in San Francisco and in ra asking random passers-by for help after getting no aid from the police. Surprise. The only civilian to step in and at least try to help them was played by extra Leila Sarakalo. Sarakalo was not an actor, 
and was only offered and only offered to be an extra in the scene to earn some money to retrieve her car. After waking that morning, she found that her car had been impounded due to the production's filming. To get round this, she approached the crew, was hired as an extra, and then ad-libbed a line, which was surprisingly kept in the final cut. It earned her the credit and saw her inducted into the Screen Actors Guild, as well as, well as earning her some, hopefully, some money to get a car back from being impounded. Yeah, I, knew, I heard that story. I love that story as well. Yeah. She, she wasn't supposed to say anything and basically just kept on uh, put throwing in a line so that she'd have to be uh, inducted into SAG and get paid. So, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I think, it, uh, I think it was uh, either Nimoy or Bennett that actually just liked the line in the end and were like, ah, just keep it. Yeah. <laughs> now, there was a scene where Sulu meets his great-grandfather as a boy on the streets of San Francisco. However, this was cut by Hal Bennett due to the insufficient acting ability of the boy playing Sulu's ancestor. Apparently, the boy's mother was on set and unsettled him to the point where his performance suffered. The scene does remain in the Voidshorn novelization, however, for those eager to see what transpired. Yeah, it's a shame because Sulu gets nothing to do in the film as a result. No, no. Now, art director Nilo Rodis, I mean, this is a well-known one, but uh, he approached robotics expert Walt Conti to come up with a solution to provide whale footage after attempt to film the creatures in real life offered no tangible results. Conti's replacement whale effects were so good that activists, as well as the US fishing authorities, criticised the production for endangering the whales as they were all convinced the subjects were real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do that too <laughs> yeah exactly it's it, most of this stuff is you know kind of common knowledge yeah now, there is one uh, shot of um actual whales but you can blatantly tell because it's just obvious stock footage when they're freed and it just cuts to a scene of the like whales in the distance in the sea and it's like yeah this this might as well have getty images stamped across yeah, it yeah yeah shut the stock <laughs> Right. According to Nimoy on the Blu-ray commentary, the bus scene uh, where Kirk Patrick plays an antagonistic punk was inspired by real-life events. Nimoy was walking down the street in New York when a punk came out of a nearby store in front of him with his boombox. That's uh, some kind of stereo for the kids listening, which is probably ironic as the term stereo is probably a dated term at this point. I'm that old. Anyway, the, uh, the punk like a really out. big MP3 player. <laughs> yes. What's an MP3 player? <laughs> it's like a really Man. big phone. Physical <laughs> streaming. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the pump coming out of the store was disturbing everyone around and annoyed Nimmo and thought to himself, if I really was spot, I'd pinch his head off. So, you know, I think we can all agree that the scene as Bill not only satisfied Nimmo's head, but any of us who've been stuck on public transport with a self centered asshole. Definitely. And, you know, um, I don't know if you've done this already, but I um, over the years I've had a bit of a deep dive into Kirk Thatcher, who plays the punk on the bus. So I can give you quite a lot of information about him if you like. Go for it. Yeah, um, I don't know if you know this, but he's actually a sort of a, still a working actor and producer. He's one of the main people who currently works on Muppets. So oh yeah, yeah. He's, uh, I recognise him in uh, Werewolf by Night. He was an actor in Werewolf by Night with a fantastic Scottish accent. He briefly reprised the role of Punk on Bus for Picard Season 2, which, again, we're not going to get into the (laughs) temporal dynamics of how that doesn't make sense. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) 
Uh, and yeah, he also, I think I remember seeing somewhere that he worked on Farscape on the kind of Muppet puppet things that were part of that. So yeah, yeah it's yeah. just incredible. The guys sort of, you would not expect that to be the same dude, but yep, it's him. And he's yeah. quite active on social media if you happen to find him. Oh, I've not, uh, I've not noticed him on social media. I've had a lot oh, for him. Me a few times, yeah, on the, on the old site. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, the scene at Plexicorp, and it's got the attempts to speak to the computer, was originally supposed to fear a Commodore Amiga. Uh, for the, again, for the benefit of those not as old as Mike and me, the Amiga was a popular home computer at the time. However, in yet another marketing triumph that seems to be the norm for movie productions we've discussed on the Silver Screen podcast, Commodore denied the request, wanting nothing to do with the production. Instead, the crew had to settle and make do with an Apple Mac. Now, Commodore USA eventually shut down in 2012, whereas no one really knows what became of Apple, which is weird. They're making portable stereos. All right. <laughs> Small boomboxes. Yeah. <laughs> Right, and speaking of Plexicorp, we've mentioned it before on the Silver Screen podcast during the Jurassic World review, but within about three years of Trek 4's release, there was indeed a formula created for transparent aluminum. Aluminium, now, we're Americans. Hey, I'm, I'm pandering here. Pack it <laughs> in. Uh, now, synthetic white sapphire, as it is also known, has existed since the early 1900s, but never manufactured as large glass-like sheets until the formula for the... Uh, Aluminium oxynitride was assembled not long after Voyage Home's debut. And finally, this is the only time during the original Fuse tenure that Kirk says a variation on the line story in it. Yeah, I did. Uh, I, I took a note of that because I was like, ah, that's a rarity, but yeah. <laughs> By the way, apologies if anyone's having to put up with the audio distortions from DK. <laughs> it seems to be especially awkward every time you're talking today, the old machine gun sound, but hopefully people understand that. <laughs> I, I am trying to rectify this, people. Don't worry. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. So, yeah, uh, was that everything you had for the uh, behind the scenes stuff? It is, yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, I just, uh, oh, Lord, I'm, I'm going to wait for it to stop. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, I just wanted to add that obviously um, the film is dedicated to the memory of the people, uh, the lives that were lost on the Challenger in the well-known shuttle disaster uh, not long before the film came out. So also, you know, obviously extend our condolences for that. We mentioned it already because um, I think it came up during our first man review on the Silver Screen podcast. Yeah. Still tragic and still horrible, but it is nice that they get a dedication, uh, you know, it's quite sweet at the start of this movie. Um, I also have a ton of behind the scenes as a sort of knowledge about this film because, and again, I've mentioned this before, um, I used to have the video VHS set of the first six Star Trek movies. And for some reason, Voyage Home, even in the days before like DVD, you know, extra extra features and stuff, had like a half hour making of and tons of um, like a Leonard Nimoy introduction and bits and pieces like that. So. Uh, the only thing I can remember is that Leonard Nimoy was apparently incredibly proud that the film contains no violence, which as soon as he said that, I was like, well, okay, you're not counting the Vulcan nerve pinch then. All right, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he just he, he was very proud of the kind of environmental message of the movie. And um, there's some great behind the scenes footage I think you can still find on YouTube uh, where they're filming in just basically massive water tanks on the Paramount lot for the final scene when they're coming out of the Klingon Bird of Prey. And it is hilarious because they are just doing a terrible job of staying upright in the water. So do hunt that out just to find if you get a chance. 
Yeah. Uh, I will end the music then, in that case, because I don't have anything else. Oh, uh, Stephen, did you have happen to know anything about the making of Voyage Home that you wanted to share with anyone? Um, it has wheels in. <coughs> it has wheels, wheels in. It has wheels well, in it, yeah. yeah it has fake wheels in it. They're not real wheels, despite what people thought. <laughs> Apart from the pictures of the wheels that you mentioned. Apart from the stock footage at the end, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But no, they are very realistic um, animatronic wheels and stuff. So, yeah, people yeah. make them. Yeah, I figured the were, the, the certain shots, though, they were very perfectly in frame. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it would be very difficult to get them to behave and get them to uh, just sit there one Leonard Nimoy's trying to, you know, invasively mind meld with them and stuff, I guess. But oh, well, fair enough. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. Um, I'll jump straight into the, the first section, which is all about the writing and the plot and little bits and pieces. Uh, so uh, the first note that I've got here is <laughs> that um, this is the first appearance of a female black captain in the Star Trek franchise, something which a lot of angry nerds were very keen to point out as soon as Sonequa Martin-Green did an interview with Whoopi Goldberg and said that she was the first black captain. I think she may have meant in the main series, guys. Calm down. <laughs> but yeah, I just thought it was worth making a note of that. It's played by Madge Sinclair, who you may have seen, I think, in um, what's it called, Coming to America. Uh, and captains the USS Saratoga, which is a Miranda-class ship. Uh, all of the, sorry, ship haters and people that don't know about ship classes, we are here for them. So, uh, I'm not sure how we feel about this, that like it's only, what, three movies since the motion picture, and yet we already have another deadly probe heading for Earth, <laughs> like unknown intentions and stuff. I was like, was that the best plot you could have come up with? Yeah, I'll let you off, but still. <laughs> Yes, oh, I don't know. The, the, the probe itself for a mm. bad guy, uh, yeah, it seemed a bit less than threatening, really. Certainly, as a kid, re watching it, I sort of get it, but yeah, when I was a, a kid, it's like it's just a big two. Yeah, I do more now because I don't think it's supposed to necessarily be a threat, and they do kind of they half explain that by saying it's probably just you know putting out a healing thing for whales to ask like how's things going and when it's not getting a reply it's like have you killed all the whales <laughs> so it gets angry at you but yeah I, I don't mind the design it looks very weirdly just nothing just smooth blackness and a weird little brain ball thing or whatever yeah yeah singing. Mm. i will say though looks good in fork it just say <laughs> um, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> It took me a long time to realize. I don't know if it was just because I was watching it on video when I was younger or on TV, but it took me ages to realize that at the end it kind of tips upright. Like it goes from horizontal to vertical when it sucks in the little, whatever the receiving ball thing is. I was yeah. like, ah, oh, it never, never occurred to me that's what that thing's doing there. But okay. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. I do have another little bit. This is kind of behind the scenes ish, but uh, if you're wondering why they quickly get rid of Savik at the start of the movie, uh, there was a dropped plot, which I don't know if it's even on deleted scenes or anything, that Savik was pregnant with Spock's child after the, um, let's say, upon far moment they had in Star Trek Three, when he was going back through puberty and growing up again after his death. Uh, I think they probably wisely decided it wasn't great to have Spock just go, yeah, just look after it, I'll never see the child again. And uh, that's, I think that's why they completely didn't want Spock to be seen as just like an absent father kind of yeah exactly yeah so that's not actually a surviving moment but it is kind of weird that they just ditch Savik on vulcan for no apparent reason so 
Mm. Oh, well. And she's still credited as well, which I feel really bad when you're watching the credits and it's like, and, you know, special guest Robin Curtis of Savick. I was like, really? She has like one line, <laughs> if that. <laughs> anyway. Um... <laughs> I've just got a ton of lines, so apologies if I'm just hitting them as I go without wanting to tread on my favourite and hopefully nobody else's. But one, of, one of the great lines from the intro here is definitely when uh, Kirk asks Scotty if he can be ready and Scotty responds with, uh, damage control is easy, reading Klingon, that's hard. <laughs> so, and uh, can we get the cloaking device working? Yes, I just wish we could cloak the stench. <laughs> Very good lines. Um, one of my favourite scenes is early on in the film when uh, it's between Spock and Amanda, which, again, great that they managed to get uh, Jane Wyatt back to play Amanda because she's very good in this one uh, scene. And I love that it's kind of... It's Spock doing, like, the super intelligent test thing and then getting stumped by how do you feel and obviously Amanda explaining, well, you're half human. The computer has to take that into account, so it's a legitimate question. Um, so, and, and the callback to that is what really makes it at the very end. He says, yes, tell mother, I feel fine. <laughs> I just really love that moment. So what about you guys? You have similar thoughts on that scene? Yeah, it is a nice little callback. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. It also, uh, again, I didn't notice this until this time around, but it's also the first reference to T. Planner Hath, who's one of the like founders of Vulcan Society, because I knew that was the name of the ship that made first contact, but didn't realize that's where it came from. And this time around, being a big geek, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, I do like as well that they did take a moment for Savick to kind of stop and tell Kirk about David as somebody who, as you know, was very emotionally affected by that in Star Trek 3 so, you know, telling him that he, he went out a hero and everything, I think was a nice moment yeah I've, uh, I've mentioned it didn't, get much, didn't get much more, but uh, you know, with the amount that they did try and fit in this, it's uh... Yeah, that's the thing. I, do, I, I I did write, like, I appreciate that they took that moment because it's the sort of thing you would imagine would be the first thing to get cut and to lose. So I appreciate that they kept it in, even though, like I said, it's kind of lip service, but at least it's there. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Uh, again, I've mentioned this in passing to, uh, I think it was you, Steve, when you were messaging back and forth, talking of favourite lines when McCoy's sort of debating with Spock about what was it like to die. Spock tells mm. him he would need a shared frame of reference and McCoy just says, you're telling me I have to die to understand your thoughts on death? And then Spock just kind of turns away and says, oh, excuse me, Doctor, I'm receiving a number of distress calls. And McCoy just, with beautiful uh, sort of sarcasm, just goes, I don't doubt it. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. The Spock-McCoy relationship I absolutely love in this film. I think it's yeah. uh, it's really well played. It doesn't come off like either one of them is particularly nasty. It's just kind of good banter back and forth. Again, another great line I love. Uh, for some reason, I've always remembered when McCoy kind of says, oh, does the probe just want to say hi there to the people of the Earth? And it's Spock that says, well, there's other forms of life on Earth. Only human arrogance would assume the message was meant just for man. So do appreciate that uh, thing. And yeah, I appreciate it. So I'll ask for you guys a thought on this. Do you guys appreciate the way that they tied in the kind of save the whales environmental message? Because I feel like it could have been preachy and yet it doesn't come off like that. It kind of makes perfect sense with the sci-fi-ness of the story. No, yeah. it's, it's, it's not on the nose at all. I mean, you know, they, they do get the message across, but it's not rubbed in your face, as it were. And I think that's uh, to the movie's benefit because a lot of people could have come out of that saying, oh, as they were preaching but uh, yeah i think yeah. they did a job incorporating into the story or well you know incorporating the story around the message as it were. yeah yeah what yeah. about you Stephen? 
definitely so. And there's a lot of criticism these days about that sort of thing, where they seem to mm. be forcing that that's actually the point of the, the entire movie. And yeah, it's it's there, they're the conservation element. But with that sci-fi twist, I think they did it really well. Yeah, I agree. I, I do wonder if, if this film was released today, if it would just be decried by right-wing people as, that film's just way too woke, telling yeah. us all to save the whales and stuff. But it's beloved somehow anyway, so let's not complain. Um, yeah, it was it was nice that they used the uh, slingshot technique callback from the original series as well uh, with, for mm. the time travel. Um, and it looks pretty good in this film, I will say, particularly the scene of when they start time traveling and they have that really trippy sequence of like their heads forming is like a weird shape and lights flashing at you. And I don't know whose idea that was or why, but it just, it always kind of stuck in the memory and was like, whoa, this is so trippy. And again, it took me until this time to realize that there's dialogue in that scene from the end of the film because it's time yeah. travel. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Trippy. Very trippy. Uh, what about you, Stephen? Do you remember that scene? What did you think about it? Um, yeah, the, the graphics and stuff, uh, I suppose that day and age was yeah, quite a thing, really, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the fact that we're going at warp 9.9 towards the sun was a bit interesting, but yeah. Well, again, they did that in original series. They explained that's how they do the time travel. I'm sure it's not scientifically accurate, but yeah, head towards the sun and break away and hope it slingshots you back in time instead of dying. So. Yeah. <laughs> how did they find it? It was during the episode, I can actually answer this, it was during the Naked Time because they were heading towards the sun and they had to do a cold restart of the warp engines or something uh, when everyone was like drunk off of that virus. So it was genuinely by accident at the end of that episode that they just travelled back in time three days or something stupid. And we're like, oh, we'll use that. <laughs> yeah. TOS, man, it was a different time in the 60s. <laughs> um, you like yeah, that I... it as a threat and it's, you know calling back to earlier episodes this season and not as uh, well yeah we'll just pop back in time do a yeah know, a routine yeah they job. actually they actually made an effort it wasn't just a question of and we traveled back in time <laughs> no problem whatsoever you know so yeah um i do like as well that the film's very good at like setting up the stakes and things so that as soon as they arrive uh, the dilithium crystals have been drained and they mentioned you know they have to they can use was it nuclear fission or whatever, which again is a little bit of a on the nose kind of oof, <laughs> which again, mm -hmm. we kind of talked about DK during our little Green Men review and they're kind of making a comment on, can you believe they have nuclear power at this particular time? But yeah. Um, so yeah, and obviously that gives you a chance to, to have that nice moment when they see the ship and give it the older, oh, Admiral, and it's the Enterprise, <laughs> which I appreciated, but um Again, I should have probably referenced this in the behind-the-scenes stuff, but it wasn't actually the USS Enterprise, if anybody was curious. It wasn't, no. Yeah, because that wouldn't have been the same type of ship. It was actually the USS Ranger. Uh, and you can kind of tell, because if you look very closely, some people are still wearing USS Ranger caps in the background of some scenes. So, oops. <laughs> Uh, what was that? Oh, yeah. And fun fact, this is the first of the notes that I got from Adrienne. Um, she was actually stationed at the Naval Air Station in Alameda from 1994 to 96. So, oh, wow. Adrienne, I really want to know what that was like if you aren't, you know, <laughs> held to top secret secrecy and if the Enterprise or the Ranger happened to have been there at the time. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, I think the humour in this film, again, should be ridiculous, but it really works. So even the thing with, like, the 
the garbage men, let's call them, to pander to the Americans, seeing the like cloaked ship landing, and just did you see that? No, and neither did you. Let's just go. <laughs> yeah. uh, even Kirk's like everybody remember where we parked and double dumbass on you and break up. You look like a cadet review. <laughs> it's all just yeah. That's when you know what kind of film it's going to be, which I think relates to what you were saying, Stephen. Like the threat can't seem too too scary or, or terrifying because it's. The tone of the film is quite light and playful, so yeah, yeah. definitely. Awesome. Uh, what do we think about the scene? This really, again, this is only going to bug me because I'm such a nerd. But the scene when Kirk sells the glasses to the guy for money, the antique shop or whatever, and uh, I think it's Spock that says, "Weren't they a gift from McCoy?" And Kirk says, "That's the beauty; they will be again." And I'm like, it "Doesn't work that way. It's not like you're going to go back into the future and they'll suddenly reappear." <laughs> Surely, right? Like that's—it's one of those things that baffles my brain. The more I think about it, because I'm like, "What, Joel Hodgson's gift incoming?" <laughs> you what? Joel Hodgson gift incoming. <laughs> it's just a show. I should really just relax. I know, but these kind of things keep me up at night because I'm a nerd. <laughs> the other time travel stuff makes such perfect sense to me, and yet that one is just like, "What are you on about, Kirk?" <laughs> anyway. Nice if that showed the glasses again in Star Trek Five. <laughs> yeah, well, again, you shouldn't have them anyway. <laughs> little, uh, there's so many cool little bits of humor that I don't notice on first watch that aren't like you know blatantly obvious lines and stuff as well. So the scene when it's like um, we need to work out where we're going, how do we figure it out, and everything, and they stood right in front of like the world's biggest yellow pages advert, like the entire side of a building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah, there we go. <laughs> and uh, and Spock's moment of like getting on the bus with this amount of like you know huge amount of notes and just saying wow oh, what does it mean exact change <laughs> awesome uh, obviously we know uh, people have been taking the mick for years out of the way that uh, Walter K. Diggers Chekhov asks for nuclear vessels and uh, none finer than uh, Futurama when they did their Star Trek episode if anyone has seen that and remembers it <laughs> I just love that. When uh, Fry asks him to say his sentence, some about like, oh, we, we woke up and we had these bodies. Now say it in Russian. When we woke up, we had these bodies. Oh, now say nuclear vessels. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, what did you guys think about the running joke of the colourful metaphors being like an excuse to get away with swearing? And... Yeah, it was a thing that played on, really. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, context obviously was off a lot of things, which was there with the play. I think that's the thing, isn't it? They play the fish out of water thing really well by them just not really getting it. And a lot of the sort of mixed up swearing and stuff is a perfect example of that. And uh, But again, something that took me a few watches to realise is when Kirk thinks he's an expert in this and he's like, oh, you can find these things in all the literature of the period. Then names like just random authors that I've never heard of and Spock just sarcastically goes, ah, the giants. <laughs> Pretty funny. Um, again, I appreciate that the uh, the economical nature of introducing Jillian as a character by having her like literally introduce herself because that's her job. So she's like, I work at this whale institute and these are my whales and it gets all of that crap out of the way. Um, yeah. I did really sort of, I, I, the most disturbing scenes in the film, I think, are when they show the scenes of the whaling on the yeah. like video monitor thing that she's showing because, oof, that's graphic. Like more so than you would expect necessarily. Um, and again, this is a, a line that would get absolutely just lambasted today, but Spock saying, 
to hunt a species to extinction is not logical and Jillian's reply, whoever said the human race race wasn't logical. So yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I have to ask you guys about this. What what did you make of it the first time you saw that Spock was like in the tank, mind melding with the whale and the kind of the comedy? Maybe she's talking to that man. <laughs> Chicken, all I this loved, stuff. loved it. I loved that scene. <laughs> Yeah, unexpected, definitely. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah, George and Gracie are great. As I said, they're, they're basically animatronics, but very convincing. Um, but then you get into the scene where I think Kirk, Spock, and um, uh, what's her name, Jillian, are in the car having their discussion. And again, it's just hilarious misunderstanding of various bits and pieces. So, like Spock saying Gracie's pregnant, leading to the, you know, hit the brake moment. And, um, I think you've mentioned this, DK, the way that they have the thing about, uh, do you like Italian? No, yes, no, yes, no, yes. yes. I love Italian, and so do you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> and even the line about, um, I think he had a little too much LDS in the 60s. Oh, yeah. Uh, a line which has inspired the uh, unofficial uh, abbreviation for Star Trek Lower Decks, by the way. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. The people that make the show are adamant that they refer to it with the shorthand LDS. Officially, I think it's LD, but they're like, yeah, it's LDS and it's a reference to Star Trek 4. Yeah. Nice. Uh, again, I mentioned McCoy, I think, is, is good with Spock, but also in the scenes with Scotty. So in the Plexicorp bit, when he's uh, he's taking it way too far, and McCoy's like, don't bury yourself in the pot. And he's like, where could my assistant come and join us? <laughs> awesome. Um, another great line, sure, you won't change your mind. Is there something wrong with the one I have? Yeah. Yeah, uh, and again, I've mentioned it already, but uh, the way the film sets up stakes is really good. So during the dinner scene, when they mention they're on a clock because if the baby's born in captivity, odds are it won't survive, uh, and they're being shipped off at noon tomorrow. Um, you know, so it gives you that, and then Spock, the scene with Spock immediately afterwards is like we're talking about all life on Earth. You know, if we don't get it sorted, so yeah. There's a um, there's a, an interesting little scene in the novelization. I don't know if you've read the novelization. After that. Know where uh, Gillian's watching Kirk try and eat a slice of pizza and he's eating it from the crust inwards because he's, they don't have pizza in the uh, in the future. I refuse to believe they don't have pizza in the 23rd it's, century. It's the one thing that puts me off, to be frank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not having that. They definitely have pizza. <laughs> Um, okay, I have to ask about this bit, so I'm going to throw it across to you guys. What do you make of the whole thing about the capture and interrogation of Chekhov um, and the rather unfortunate use of the R word, perhaps, during it as well? Yeah, you would not be able to, uh, to use that term these days, thank goodness. I like the way that it's uh, played for the humour again, though, even though, again, it could be serious, so Chekhov not quite getting it and, uh, you're, you're done, mister. I am. Can I go now? <laughs> and uh, again, DK, you'll appreciate this. I was reading that, you know how there's the funny scene where Chekhov tries to fire the phaser and it's not working because of the radiation or whatever, and he just throws the phaser at them? Um, yeah. I, I read that supposedly that phaser was uh, picked up eventually by um, Gary Seven and Roberta Lincoln in one of the Khan novels that Rick Everson was trying to sell us on. So oh, wow. it's like a whole... Yeah, there's a whole thing about them retrieving this phaser from a, like an aircraft carrier that shouldn't be there. And I'm like, oh, man, I really have to read these books. I've just downloaded the first book on Kindle, so I'm going to oh, that's give cool. that a go. Yeah, I did the same because it was 99p on the Play Store, yeah. so I downloaded the first one as well. 
definitely going to give it a go and get back to Rick and tell him what we think of it. So. I love the scene where um, yeah, it's a bit of a twist that they send the wheels away early. So Jillian, even though she kind of seemed really like, oh, I don't believe any of this, ends up trying to find Kirk and then just runs into the to the cloaked bird of prey and sees the like Sulu lowering the water tank to nowhere and whatnot. Yeah. It's just so good. And it's really good effects when you think like it's got to be difficult to pull off. I mean, maybe not because it is just, I guess, like a light and you just, but still, it looks really cool when they're lowering it into an invisible thing, you know? Yeah, I don't know if you guys thought the same about the effects. I thought what there was, there's not much here in this film, but what there is, I think, really works, you know? Even, like, the flattening of the um, the landing gear into the grass that you don't see anything except the way it just flattens, that's a really cool effect. Probably simple, but it works. Interesting how they do that, actually. Perhaps they yeah. the rest of the grass around it. Yeah, maybe. I don't know, actually. That's a good point. No, again, I, I like that every character gets a through journey, so I do kind of appreciate that they take the time to say that uh, they have to stop and help Chekhov and ask Spock, is that the logical thing to do? And he responds, no, but it is the human thing to do. Um, and again, throwing it to you guys, how good is the scene of just when they have to go into the hospital and McCoy is just exasperated and grows a woman a new kidney and is just disgusted at the kind of barbaric practices and stuff? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, such definitely. A good scene. Such a good scene. Um, yeah, what is this, the Dark Ages? <laughs> At the very end, which is, uh, how's the patient? Oh, I, th I think he'll pull through. You went in with a she. One little mistake. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, and McCoy giving this, like, super complicated sounding thing, and like, what did you say she has? Cramps. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah. Uh, Again, to you know the, the the faith in Spock about you have to take your best guess. He has more faith in your guesses than most people's facts. And the exciting race against the whaling ship at the end is cool. Um, the heroic dive to rescue the trapped whales in the bird of prey is the last minute kind of uh, you know problem. Um, I love that the probe is left a bit mysterious. It's not really all that explained. It just kind of packs up and buggers off again. So, <laughs> so we never find out like who sent it. What what was it about? What was it just wanting the wheels? What, what was it? So, yeah, but I don't think I want that explained because I like that bit of mystery. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, I did a sequel novel to it. Ah. I, I seem to be turning to the king of expanded media on this podcast. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, they uh, it was by uh, Margaret Wonder Banano, and it's called Probe. <laughs> That's not a real name. <laughs> I'm, I'm only telling you. I'm only telling you what it is. And, uh, yeah. It's a really good book, actually. It takes place uh, a few weeks after the events of the movie. And mm. uh, it's, it kind of reveals where the probe came from, but it doesn't kind of shove it in your face, so it is still ambiguous by the end of it. And it, mm. uh, it's quite a well-done novel. Ah, fair enough. Mm. That's cool. And uh, my last thing about the writing, then, obviously we have to talk uh, briefly about the scenes at the end. And so what did you guys think of... Uh, the sort of the, the disciplinary proceedings, which are basically all thrown out, except Kirk is demoted to exactly where he wants to be to captain and given the Enterprise A. Uh, you know, I thought it was a pretty cool little surprise ending, and uh, it's kind of nice that even though they're being sentenced, everyone sort of stops and applauds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's. It, I mean, I, I love the movie, but those scenes at the end really bring a lump to my throat. And they shouldn't, yes. because they're, they're not as emotional as, you know, obviously scenes from earlier in the trilogy. But you just... Oh, I think they you're are. You're so invested I... in this group of people. 
you can't yeah. help but punch the air when they get off. Yeah, I completely agree. And even like little little nice character moments like um you know, Captain Spock, you're not on trial. I stand with my shipmates, you know, is, is yeah. a nice moment. And especially the bit that I love that gets me choked up just from being a fan of knowing, like, the original series and the characters is Sarek saying to Spock, you know, as I recall, I opposed your enlisting in Starfleet. It's possible that I was, mis you know, I misjudged that. And uh, your people, your associates are people of great character. I say, like, oh, man, <laughs> coming from a Vulcan, that's practically like a love fest, you know? Yeah. <laughs> And I mentioned already, you know, uh, tell mother I feel fine. And yeah, getting the Enterprise A. And finally, <laughs> ending the film with those fantastic, and again, Deaky, I know you'll appreciate this, those lovely uh, 1980s and 90s sitcom style credits <laughs> you have been oh, watching yes. in alphabetical order. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> you have the picture of Jane Weedley once more. <laughs> exactly. Oh, well. So yeah, uh, I don't know. Do you guys have any other thoughts on the writing before we uh, jump to the next section and I pass to Deaky? No, no. I just think it's I think it's really well done. But I mean, going into this, I mean, I'm going to bring it into the acting, and I don't think the script would work half as good had the performances not been as good. If you know what I mean? Yeah, hundred percent for sure. Well, that is the next section. So if you want to jump straight into uh, the acting, then yeah, take it away. You want to lead the conversation, so yeah, it's I was me talking talk the whole time. I was just the, the one, but the 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 one couple of actors that don't stand out for me, ironically enough, is going back to what you're on about, the two garbage men. I, I can't get my head around those. They're, they're a bit too sitcom for me, but mm. the, the delivery, but everybody else, I, I don't think there's a, especially from the crew, there is not a bad performance in this movie, and I think it's the performances that sell this without shadowing the doubt. Yeah, for sure. Uh, do you have any other sort of specifics or anything you want to get into? No, not really. Just the fact that so much of it, you know, I mean, obviously there is a script there, but some of the best scenes would, were ad-libbed. And mm. I just think it's a testament. You know, you know a, a lot of people don't rate, it's it's blasphemy to, to us, but a lot of people don't rate people like Bill Shatner and Leonard Nimoy as fantastic actors in the grand scheme of things. But mm. when you look at him in this, in this movie, I, I defy any actor to put in as good a performance as these guys did. I will say there's one moment, and I know it's brief, but there's a moment where Shatner's acting really does veer into the ridiculous uh, when, you know what I'm going to say probably, when he's watching Spock in the tank and he has to look exasperated and he does the most over-the-top hand on the face, like, oh, no, oh, wow, oh, comedy yeah. gesturing, and I'm oh, like, yeah. Shatner, what are you yeah. doing, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could have lived without that, but that was the only bit that he goes on full on uh, sort of Shatner on it. I don't know the, the the whole you know haven't you got any goddamn feelings about that 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 comes across as a bit rent the ghost, but like the hands hand over the face in the aquarium, I can with the predicament that they're in, I can I can buy that with the situation. I'd like the moment you just referred to where he's like, yeah, you're, you're talking about the end of life on Earth. You're half human. Don't you have any damn feelings about that? Is I like that scene. I think that's actually well acted, personally. Well, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's, it's a bit, I don't know. It's, it, it, it tests the boundaries, I think. Yeah, well, fair enough. Um, well, I've got a few little things I wanted to bring up. So I wanted to say uh, Mark Leonard as Sarek, I think, for considering how how barely he appears in the film, I think, knocks it out of the park in his two scenes. Um, <laughs> you were saying, like, the emotional response you have, and the moment when he comes in and basically, you know, verbally slaps down the Klingon ambassador at the start of the movie, which has nothing to do with the main plot, but it's one of my favourite bits, the way he's like, um, 
oh, no, I think you'll find you guys, you know, you started it. You were the ones that fired. Oh, we were perfectly justified. You were justified in murder. <laughs> he's like, oh, he's not taking any of this guy's crap, is he? <laughs> no. <laughs> and, yeah, I mentioned a bit at the end with uh, with Nimoy, which is great. I mentioned Jane Wyatt being great in her scene with him at the start. And uh, it's uh, this is, again, apropos of nothing specific to this movie, but I do like that we get um, Brock Peters, who would later play Joseph Sisko, appearing for the first time as Admiral Cartwright, who doesn't really get a lot to do, but it's kind of nice that they set that character up so that when Star Trek VI comes around, spoiler alert, it's quite a shock when he's one of the sort of guys that are you know, saboteurs that are trying to um, sabotage the peace conferences between the Klingons. I do um, like the irony in that, in the, as well as an actor who was a, you know, a vigorous civil rights activist, and then they make him one of the most racist people in <laughs> Star Trek Six for hating all Klingons. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's dangerous uh, territory, but I think it's because you, you establish it as a character that you've kind of rooted for in this movie, I think it does make it hit you a bit harder as opposed to you. Yeah, oh, I'm so that glad that go with, uh, with Sarek as, uh, Sarek, Sarek as well for uh, Valerius. For Valerius, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, probably, yeah. I mean, as, as, anyway. as much of a shock as Cartwright was, I think having Sarek in that in Valerius' role would have been a step too far. Yeah, probably, uh, we're not reviewing Star Trek Six, though. We will probably one day, <laughs> but not right now. Uh, so yeah, talking about the acting, then we haven't really talked about the the main kind of guest star for this movie, Catherine Hicks as Gillian. Um, so yeah, what were your thoughts on that? <laughs> I th I think she's good. Uh, again, she she has a tendency occasionally to look a bit too exasperated a lot of the time, but I've not really known her for anything other than this. And I think later on she did Child's Play. I'm not really oh, yeah, yeah. in much else. So. I can't say what her performance is in relation to her other roles, but I, I liked her. I think she's an ex Jillian's an extremely likable character. Uh, mm. Yeah, and I think she, I believe Nimoy hired her because when she came in for auditions, she had a good working chemistry with Shatner. <laughs> Fair enough. That makes sense. Um, this is where I'm going to drop in another note from Adrienne, who just says that um, when she first saw the movie, she remembered being a bit annoyed with the way that Catherine Hicks played Gillian. But now she completely identifies with her and she just says, ah, age. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think we're all at that point. <laughs> well, we're getting there now where we're like, you know what? That level of exasperation is just every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm past that. I'm in the McCoy state. <laughs> I've always been in the McCoy stage, my man. Uh, yeah, is there anybody that uh, stood out to you, Stephen? Is the, you know, being one of the best in the movie? Um, ooh, I mean, I've certainly got my favourites in there. I was going to just make a comment about where she uh, slaps her boss when she uh, fed up the wheels have gone. And, you know, good job she's got a few judges, she's lost her job. Yeah, that was a bit of a uh, yeah. current Twitter moment, wasn't it? Absolutely, it's like you know, expecting her the next day to just go in and go, oh, I'm really sorry. But then she's like, ah, I went there, I can go to the future and be really important because I'm the only Wouldn't she be out of a job anyway since her job was basically looking after the two whales that they got rid of? <laughs> well, that okay. Well, yeah, she's an expert in that, but you know. It is a kind of worker's fantasy, though, to just go in and twat your boss. Awesome, <laughs> <laughs> as well. The. You mentioned the hospital earlier. It's like the fact that they actually cure Chekhov and the doctors don't make any comment about the fact that seeing the patient who is in fact no longer a patient because he's fine. Uh, you could not see from the door that it actually you know, regained consciousness and was talking. 
Absolutely, like from the start, not, not being a particularly massive original series fan, was just the fact you get a sea Vulcan. Yes, yeah, yeah it looks really good and things like that, and they're all wearing the tra- traditional Vulcan gear and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, you did catch a glimpse of it in the motion picture, but this is the first time I think where it's like really, you know, you see the desert vistas and stuff quite clearly, and as you yeah. said. I think you do see the priestess at the end of three as well when she's uh, returning Spock's Catra from McCoy. <laughs> so, mm. Yeah, cool. Fair enough. Um, yeah, that's that's all I had about the acting. So, uh, do you guys, uh, are you happy to move on to the little bits I have about directing of the movie? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the first note I have, and again, apologies, I know this is churlish, and I know, DK, you're going to throw the mystery science theatre just relax gif in my face. <laughs> how How... During the trial where the Klingon ambassador guy is showing the footage of what Kirk did, how exactly was there a camera in space to film the destruction of the Enterprise perfectly from the outside? I like that they called out attention to that, where Gillian gives them the coordinates in the uh, the Bird of Prey, and he says, put it on screen, and she says, how can you do that? And I think that just pretty much sums up everybody's feelings when watching these kind of things. <laughs> It just seems so weird. Like, who's filming the destruction of the Enterprise? Where are they getting it from, you know? Yeah. I know it's obviously just footage from the movie, but it's like, come on, guys, really? And it's so well edited. It cuts from the inside to the outside, like, just as the Klingon discovers the sabotage and stuff. It's like, no, nah, come on, guys. <laughs> A little bit of believability. Um, maybe maybe that's why Sarek turned up. He wanted to defend his son's directing. <laughs> Mr. Ambassador, this was a beautifully staged sequence. <laughs> uh, I really liked this as a very, sort of, again, weird directing note, but I liked how kind of cool and futuristic San Francisco looked. And again, I know we've seen it in the motion picture, but I think just the little bits of like future cars and stuff flying by. And I will say a lot of the graphics and stuff in terms of the computer screens and uh, crap like that, they're always the thing that date these movies. But my word, they look very 1980s, don't they? <laughs> They do, but I can still kind of deal with them, if you know what I mean. They, they're not off-putting. It's not like say if you put, when you put on something these days, like Lawnmower Man, and you think, Jesus Christ. But this this is all right, you know? Yeah, I couldn't. Yeah. I, I can't quite get it. I mean, I know it's, it's fair enough because, obviously, in the original series, everything looked like it was from the 60s. So, you know, fair enough. Um, but, yeah, it's just – it's so – like, come on, is this the highest level of computer they've got when they're like, show me the, the nearest star base and they go to like the 3D, whatever, sort of telemetry image and it's just like watching war games or something. <laughs> just like, oh, what's this? I did like all the uh, all the screens where it kept cutting to, you know, reports from different ships and, and stuff like that in the background. I really, uh, I really like that. And again, going back, I, I did like the fact that uh, Jane, Jane Weedling was in there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, we've mentioned it in a, a previous episode, but it was nice to see the old mushroom space dock again. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it it's was cool. So the when, they, when they went past it and all the power went off, it was a really well done effect, I thought, as well. And uh, yeah. Possibly my favorite effect in the film, just for like sheer, again, how the F did they do it? It looks amazing, is when the probe starts like sucking up those seas, basically, and the water goes like upright and starts flowing up towards it. I'm like, that is impressive, you know? Mm. I thought so, anyway. Uh, 
let's see. I, I love that the um, when the, the headquarter scenes, you just get a real sense of the chaos of everything, like breaking and they're wiping water off the screens and running around. And uh, there's a one of the windows outside shatters and uh, the water starts coming in and stuff. It's like, all right. Apparently, there was a scene filmed but excluded uh, between Sarek and Christine Chapel. Oh, well, that makes sense because I know that Major Lee is credited and you do see her in the background, but she doesn't actually get a scene. So, yeah. No. Apparently, uh, yeah. Apparently, uh, he asked her how you know how are things going, and she says something like, "Oh, not good." Uh, yeah. But they have like a brief discussion prior to that. But again, it was it was deleted, so it would have been nice to have seen that. But I guess for non-fans, it wouldn't have made much sense in this grand scheme of things. Yeah, although I mean, there is the scene where they say it looks like you're stranded here with us, Ambassador Tassarek. So you kind of get the sense of, oh dear, if they're going down, so is he. You know? but, uh, yeah. yeah. That's fair enough. Um, but yeah, even, is... even, now, even watching it now, I do think the directions and performances are good in that section. Because even oh, yeah. now, That's just as, that, as, yeah. you know, as you know, it's going to, even, you know, you know how it's going to end. But you still feel that sense of threat. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And no, I said that. That's absolutely the chaos is, that really comes through as well when you think, like, it's acting. They're not really in danger and stuff. But the sense of, you know, you do kind of brick it for them and you're like, oh, you better hurry up and get this sorted. So... Yeah, I appreciated all of that. And um, I do appreciate at the end as well. I, again, it's such a stupid little thing, but I do appreciate that the uh, they arrive back like literally like the second after they'd left. So it replays the whole scene. And then right after the window shatters where it left it previously, they go, wait, what's that look over there? And it's the bird of coming back. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah when cool. I first saw that, it kind of blew my mind because I'd never experienced anything like that before on, on TV or movie. Yeah. Where the time travel makes logical sense, it's not like, well, the entire time you were away is time you have to account for when you go back. Because it's like, no, you're time traveling. You can go back a second later. <laughs> There's no reason not to. So, yeah, I love that. Um, this is, again, a little bit of a weird thing to make notice of. But I was looking out for kind of like directing flourishes and stuff. Because as we've mentioned, it was Leonard Nimoy who directed this after doing Star Trek Three, And there's a really beautiful scene which... Is it doesn't really have any purpose, but it's just artistically really nice when they first land after the time travel. And it's the camera sort of fades from the reeds outside of the like little swampy area where they've landed and fades into the image of them on the bridge, all kind of collapsed unconscious. And I was like, that's a really brilliant transition. You know what I mean? <laughs> you could have easily just done nothing there, just cut straight to it or something, but I appreciated that. See, when, when, when I first watched that, I thought the whole thing with the reeds, I thought that was actual reality. I thought, obviously, the morphing faces and the, the body dropping down to Earth was mm -hmm. the dream sequence. But then it kind of faded into that reed section with the water. No, I think and that so is reality. It's where they've landed, isn't it? That's the whole point. It's like, um, it's the stillness after the chaos. That's why I appreciated it, kind of. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I know what you said. You think it's still part of the dream sequence. But no, I think it's after they've landed because it's like... It's still out there, but some time has passed because they've been unconscious. And then I think Kirk wakes up first, doesn't he? And he's like, Sulu, wake up! Because, you know, it's Kirk, he's lazy. He can't look at a screen himself. <laughs> See, I'm not sure. I'm, I, I, don't, I don't know if it is part of that dream sequence. That's how I've always read it anyway. Fair enough. Well, we can always check again later. What do you think, audience? Chime in <laughs> with us on this. Is that reality or is it still part of the time travel sequence? <laughs> we'll do a poll maybe when this goes out and see. What does throw me in that section where they wake up, though, is the fact that the background computers in the Klingon ship are using loading noises from the ZX Spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I mean, you know, it's 1986. What else? I know. I, I, I just imagine somebody listening to it as an spectrum and saying, "That's the sound we want." <laughs> it's a very odd it could have been worse. At least it wasn't like Admiral the Klingon ship sounding an alert. Do 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 do. Sorry, Pac-Man noises that they kept using in uh, Superman Three. Well, just Eddie, that annoying noise that we all like start to put up with whenever a modem was connecting to the internet. <laughs> you start to just hear it go, coo, car, <laughs> But I don't so think, Klingon... <laughs> exactly. I thought the Klingon, graphics, uh, the Klingon graphics were pretty good, though, because they did at least remember that they should have been Klingon. So, you know, that's what they looked like, isn't it? In the background of the things. So, um, where am I again? There we are. So they, it all looked like that instead of looking like it's a starship. I just, I'm really proud of making that sign. I just wanted to leave it up there again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, and again, that end scene, it, we, we could talk about it forever, but it's, enough has been said about it, the, how glorious it is when they sweep under the Golden Gate Bridge for the landing uh, right after they've chased the whaling ship off and then they do that kind of landing and stuff and... Uh, yeah, I think it's it's a really fantastic, very breathtaking scene. And uh, even though there's not a ton of action in the movie, what it does have, I think, is really good and works really well. Um, yeah. So uh, <laughs> that was the other thing I was going to say was, as I was talking about the kind of video of this having little behind-the-scenes stuff on, for some reason, I remember it having a full-on explanation as to why it was better to watch these things in widescreen. Because, like, back in the day, you had to have the black bars on the top and bottom because TVs were still square and stuff. And the video was in widescreen. And I think to combat the fact that people used to always complain and be like, it's cut off half the image. It uh, yeah. sort of had an entire thing where it explains, like, if you had the pan-scan version... And it used the scene of Kirk, Spock, and Jillian in the car, how it would have to sort of, the camera would have to move left and right, depending on who was speaking. But the way it was filmed and shown in cinemas, they were all in shot, all three of them. Um, so, again, I don't know if you can still find that on the internet, but it was kind of weirdly fascinating. So if you can, look it up. <laughs> yeah. Any other thoughts on, like, directing or, uh, you know, the staging of scenes and things? No, I just, uh, I, I think uh, Nimoy did a fantastic action sequence job when uh with the hospital chase mm. it it, mm. it does still get the blood pumping not so much i don't think where Chekhov's being chased and you can tell it's an obvious you know standing uh, mm. for Chekhov in silhouette but i think that hospital sequence is filmed brilliantly yeah 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 for sure yeah. and i mean again it's worth noting that he pulls off the action sequences but also the comedy sequences, which are often harder. So like like I've mentioned already, the kind of the plexicorp scene, the way that's played for the comedy and staged and everything, it's it's difficult to do that and not make it come across as over the top, you know? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, the fact that, you know, I mean, when he was directing Trek 3, obviously he wasn't in it as much. Yeah. But he's got more screen time than, you know, a lot of the people in this. And he's still directing to such a point that you think this is really good. I mean, yeah, that. definitely. I think that's where the um, assistant director or second unit director comes in and uh, deserves some praise. But I foolishly didn't look at who it was, but I'm sure they did a great job. <laughs> yeah. So, TK, did you want to take us through anything you have on the uh, the sound and music? Yeah, I'm going on their soundtrack now with regards to uh, Leonard Rosenman. Uh, when the soundtrack 
when I first heard the soundtrack, I really wasn't impressed. We'd had Goldsmith, which was memorable. We've had James Horner, which was just bone-shakingly fantastic. And I remember being incredibly disappointed by Rosenman's score at first. But as time's gone on, and I look back at it, you know, it works. It kind of works like for the, the, the tone that the movie's setting. You yeah, wouldn't exactly be able it. to get away with something like James Horner for this. Yeah. It, it, you know, it just wouldn't work. But as, as members of my family say, they cannot listen to the main theme without thinking it's a Christmas movie. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I made the note the main theme, I think, has a certain sense of whimsy and the frolicking. Like the other ones, as you mentioned, are very bombastic. Like this is a grand adventure and this is like, we're off on an adventure. It's fine. It fits the tone of the film perfectly. So why oh, it not? does. It does. I mean, you know, I mean, back then when I first heard it, I was a moody teenager. So, you know, I was all, oh, James Horner and what is this rubbish? But it fits perfectly and i love the little motifs that he used every now and again you know when he hikes back to the original series when they see uh, the enterprise a mm, yes that's it, great it oh, yeah. really does bring a lump to your throat definitely uh, yeah because I, I i've mentioned already i'm making a point of trying to like look or listen out for soundtrack more because it's not something i notice and i get a lot of crap from certainly will <laughs> if all people for not noticing these things and i did notice a few moments here like um when they kind of have to reveal that they're arrived in 1986 San Francisco, and then the music just cuts into the most funky 1980s kind of disco stuff you've ever heard to kind of really emphasize that's where they are. I was like, okay, I appreciate it. I get this. That's cool. That's on the soundtrack. Uh, I've played that so many times. I think, if I remember rightly, don't quote me on this, though, that um, Kirk Thatcher may have written the song, I Hate You. He did. Uh, the yeah, okay. And uh, I think, I don't remember if he wrote it or not, but I do know that when he comes back in Picard, he's listening to the song, I Still Hate You, which I have really appreciated as a joke that doesn't, it doesn't whack you over the head with that joke, but if you listen to the lyrics and hear yeah, that's what it's saying and know the context, I really yeah. found that oddly hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I uh, um, I love the, uh, the design as well, uh, the sound design when it comes to uh, the communication from the probe. I was I had that note as well. Yeah, the probe noise is fantastic. Yeah. Mm. When it was originally shot, they had subtitles. So you could mm. see what the probe was saying. But oh, Nimoy wanted them removed because he thought having it ambiguous would add to the atmosphere. And I think he made the right call on that one. Yeah, definitely. How would that have worked? What would the subtitles be? Like, hello, the, the, Wales. When, when are you there? Out, <laughs> yeah, it was something like, you know, the when the probe was above Earth and it's going it was it was coming up along the bottom saying where are you and things like that and just oh that no, I, I don't i wouldn't have liked that no definitely you may as well have the whale probe doing its geordie why are call back <laughs> yeah but no speaking of the music i did like that uh, again the Chekhov escape i didn't think it was played for all that much kind of drama and tension because the music's quite jaunty so it kind of again it gives you the sense of like he's fine it's just a bit of an adventure and but the best moment for me the best thing on the soundtrack is when they're in the sea at the end and it's the kind of great victorious moment music as they're all celebrating and even though on the you know the Klingon bird of prey is slowly sinking into the sea and they're all just like ah let's frolic in the water yeah. <laughs> that's fair enough um yeah, so I don't really, that's all I have until we get to, like, uh, favourite moments and conclusions and bits and pieces, but uh, anything at all from uh, from you two? Anything you have, anything you want to talk about or bring up from the film? I think we've pretty much covered everything I've got, so it's over to Stephen. 
I was going to mention just how simple they actually hid the fact that Spock was Vulcan. Oh, yeah, when he just made, yeah, that's another yeah. acting thing. He makes the kind of a meal of the sort of just staring at him and then making a bandana out of his robe. And yeah. it's like, yeah, very much uh, pretty cool. And it, it saves you having to have another incredibly racist rice picker accident moment. <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, City on the Edge of Forever, man. That's your one moment I just don't appreciate on that. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, it is obvious, and yet, yeah, it works. I do, I do think it's silly that he, nobody seems bothered. He's clearly in like a robe the entire time, or that he comes out from being submerged completely underwater and just dries off in about a minute and a half. <laughs> yeah, other than that, uh, well, I mean, the robe thing—it's—it's it's San Francisco. I just, True, people always—he you know, was a monk or a Harry Krishna or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, yeah, anything else, Stephen? No, no, that's really it. Awesome, that's cool. Uh, yeah, so we've talked, I think, more or less about all of the things, but again, just so many great scenes. It seems like we haven't talked enough about how good all of them are, uh, but we will hopefully in the sort of favourite moments and stuff because it deserves our respect. <laughs> so let me just see if I have anything else. Oh, yeah, um, just to finish off any notes that Adrienne had uh, about bits and pieces, uh, she does just say... She finds it very interesting that in the recent Kelvin timeline movies, Carl Urban seems to sound exactly like this particular version of McCoy in the way he plays the scenes, uh, to her brain at least. I can yeah. see what you mean by that. Yeah, definitely. It's I, the... can, I can pick up on that, but I think it's because maybe this was a kind of gateway for a lot of people into the franchise. So this is how mm -hmm. they actually see McCoy, not from the series itself. So I can, I can mm -hmm. kind of understand why they would do that. Yeah, for sure. I also think it's it's one of the better versions because, like I said, it's still got the kind of lovable crotchetiness of McCoy, but without that kind of... There's times in the original series when it veers dangerously on racism, when he's all like, ah, you green-blooded, pointy-eared goblin, yeah. I'm yeah. like, dude, chill, you know? It's like, you don't need to be that vile just to be, like, to, to bust his chops, basically, which, as I said, does perfectly in this one, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um... So that was it for that. So then, shall we move on to our favourite character moment in line? Then we can do the audience uh, interaction bit and then maybe jump in with conclusions. Do it, Awesome. We'll go to you first, Stephen, because we've uh, been talking a lot and you haven't. So what's your favourite... <laughs> who's your favourite character in the movie? Sorry. Um... I mean, I was going to joke Will and Gracie, but... Um, George and Gracie, not Will and Gracie. Will and, <laughs> Will and Gracie was an early 2006. That's a sitcom I want to watch. Okay, well, then. Then I Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, character for me, um, Bones. Ah, okay, and why? Just the, the, the one-liners, the puns throughout. And I do like the hospital scene. I've yeah. Willie boys who have done something. Yeah, we're cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think he does get a lot to do, though. But, yeah, do you have, um, other than giving away your favourite line, do you have any specific moments we might not have mentioned from uh, from McCoy, then? Hmm. Probably the, I do like give, giving the woman the pill that, yeah, that cures her kidney. Yeah, yeah, again, I've mentioned I mentioned this to DK. I, I do love uh, 
again, without hammering you over the head with it, it's a background thing, but it's hilarious that he gives her the pill. You don't know what's happening. And then, like, an entire scene happens, and in the scene on the way out, you just hear her in the background going, that guy gave me a pill that grew a new kidney. <laughs> so you're like, yeah. what? <laughs> it's so weird. But, yeah, totally it's appreciate It's a simple that. sort of thing. You know, like, oh, my God, what is this, the dark ages? As they're talking about your cancer treatment and yeah, all that um, sort what... of stuff chemotherapy and stuff he just thinks is is ridiculous and barbaric and yeah. yeah even when the saving of Chekhov when he's like it's not you know it, the solution isn't drilling a hole in his head you idiot <laughs> yeah okay mm. <laughs> um what about you then DK who's your favorite character in the movie uh it's it, this one were a tough one for me I mean as we said earlier every single member of the crew shines in this mm. but I think it, I'm gonna have to go with Spock as I've said, not only did Nimoy Paul double duties, but considering he had to deliver it, you know, really deadpan, coupled with the fact that a few of his scenes were ad-libbed, I think Nimoy's timing is just first rate, and I think it comes through in, in you know, his performance as Spock. I think he absolutely steals it. Yeah, definitely. That's cool. Um, just bear with me, because I'm trying to find... I don't know if Adrienne left me her favourite character, but maybe she did, and I've just deleted the thing. Uh, she didn't, but yeah, anyway. Um, so yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you my favourite character then. Uh, we are, as usual, on the same page, Stephen. We've obviously been friends for years, oh, and it goes to jokes. My favourite character was also uh, McCoy in this one, uh, which I've said is because he is all of us in this situation, the way that he's, like, exasperated. He's having fun when he can, but he's just, like, over it. And I think that's what we would be like if we had to travel back to, like, the 80s and stuff. He's kind of like, ugh. And the way he kind of slaps down Spock at times, or even Scotty. Um, plus, like I said, he's kind of, he's Spock's guide back to humanity, uh, the way that he's teaching, trying to teach him about that part instead of just the Vulcan stuff. So, mm. yeah. Um, I don't think, yeah, Adrienne definitely hasn't left me her favourite character, but the fact that she makes a point of mentioning the Carl Urban stuff makes me think she probably would have said McCoy as well, so I'm just going to give it to him, because why not? <laughs> so it's three against one, DK. Take uh, I, I'm magnanimous in that. I, I, I can accept that. He would have been my second. Fair enough, that's cool. Uh, so, Stephen, what was your favourite moment in the film overall? Can't it be Hello Computer? What was the <laughs> I work in IT. That seems completely natural to me. That's um, <laughs> why I ask to people who think that's exactly how a computer works. Does so, anybody ever pick up the mouse and try to talk into it? <laughs> uh, well, the regular pointing at the screen or using the mouse on the screen um, physically. It's the, uh, the way he doesn't know what a mouse is, it's hilarious. Like seeing a computer and expecting a voice response is like it's the 80s but then when the guy goes just use the mouse and he picks it up and uses it like a microphone to go oh okay hello computer <laughs> it's yeah. just it's so stupid but so and, great <clears throat> and then he's absolutely excellent at typing <laughs> yeah typing like like your dad trying to type something in general you know like you one thing that, that he, he was you know really just spot on like touch typing Sort of thing, oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, almost like one finger at a time. But the fact that he did it so well, having not used that before, just, yeah, the fact that he then, that. yeah, whatever he's doing on the keyboard to try and get that stuff to do it on the screen bears no resemblance whatsoever. Really, <laughs> really a director who doesn't know technology, who's just like, do and just make it look like you're hitting every key as quickly as you can. I don't know. <laughs> ah, yes, 1980s hacking, where we just hit the keyboard in a succession a number of times, and suddenly the screen has anything we want to have happen. <laughs> yeah. 
Gritty. Yeah. Know it is. That, that entire comedy. Yeah, bit there. That was just. <laughs> and uh, how do we know he didn't invent the thing? You know, if we give him the formula, we're changing time. Um, again, this loose and fast with time throughout the movie. You mentioned well, glasses and things like that yeah. as well. You say that, but apparently there's a deleted scene. I don't know if it was filmed where they do specify that. Um, turns out that guy did invent uh, transparent aluminium, so. They did. They were literally doing what they would have had to to keep the paradox or the um, grandfather paradox thing going. So it's like, do we appreciate it more that they didn't do that for the humor, or was that like, phew, you know, kind of thing? Yeah. I don't think we need it, but yeah, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Such a good scene. I, I'm with you on that. What about you, DK? Uh, there's quite a few to choose from from a comedic point of view, hmm. but I think I'm gonna have to go with the one that hit me the most emotionally. Which was my friends, we've come home when they first went to the Enterprise A. Yeah, definitely. I do love that as well. That seems great. Kind of a shame that I, I always get bugged by Star Trek V the way that it just completely pees on that ending when it's like, oh, let's see what we uh, what it's got. He said, and we saw, didn't he? Bucket of bolts just fell apart. And I'm like, oh, come on. Yeah. It's kind of a shame you've, uh, you've ruined that nice ending, you know? It does kind of undercut it. But yeah, for what it is, I, I, I do love that. Yeah. I also appreciate that Sulu wants the Excelsior as well, because we know he ends up getting it. <laughs> so that's a nice... Um, awesome. Well, apparently well, Hal Bennett wanted him to end up on the Excelsior, but he was uh, outvoted. Ah, okay. Well, fair enough. He gets to captain it anyway, anyway, later on. Yeah. So. I think uh, he was going to be captaining it from, like, as you said, two or three, but the movie, I mean. But, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, so Adrienne did, did actually send her favourite scene. She says that hers is... Uh, the bird of prey flying right over the whaling ship when the crew desperately tries to turn the boat around and she's just written in big capitals ha 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 idiots so yeah i again i could name so many scenes we've probably talked about most of them uh, and if you've seen the movie you'll you'll know yourself it's an embarrassment of riches but i had to pick a favorite and i still kind of cheated because i would say i'm gonna pick both of the scenes with sarek from the start and end of the movie. So those, I think, are my two favourites. Um, which, again, I've talked about slapping down the Klingon and then the, the nice moment with Spock. Uh, so uh, then the last thing then here uh, is what is your favourite line in the movie, Stephen? And again, there's lots to pick. <laughs> so. I mean, yeah, unfortunately, I have to probably go back to Hello Computer. So simple. Oh, For me, it's just like, yeah. <clears throat> You, that, you should have naive. picked. We haven't mentioned it yet, but you should have picked a keyboard. How quaint! <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. More, I'm not familiar. I think the other one would probably be the uh, yeah. My God, what is this? The Dark Ages from yeah, the, yeah. Uh, Owens, uh... yeah definitely. That's cool. Uh, what about you then, DK? Uh, well, it's not so much the line. We've already talked about this, uh, you know, outside the recording. Not so much the line, but the way it's delivered, which is McCoy's reaction to find that he's got to accompany Scotty and Sulu to find a way to house the whales, and he just says, "Oh, joy." <laughs> yeah, it's a little moment, but yeah, that's fair enough. Um, well, uh, Adrienne's favourite line, and I think this kind of speaks to a lot of other moments. Uh, the actual line she's put is, they are not the hell your whales. But I think there's so many moments that, like that where Spock kind of mucks up the placement of a swear word or just chucks it in very blasé that I think that's going to speak for all of them. You know? um, so, yeah, I, I 
wrestled with this because, like I said, I've listed a load of moments that I thought were great. But in the end, I have to go with the obvious uh, sort of line that became iconic, which I always love, uh, which is, um, don't tell me you're from outer space. No, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. <laughs> which mm -hmm. I just I love that line. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fair enough. So, yeah. Uh, anything else then before I jump into the uh, audience's responses? No. No. Okay, that's fair enough. Incoming transmission. Uh, well, in that case, we did put out onto social media, you know, uh, do you think um, Voyage Home's a hit or a miss? What are your thoughts on the movie? Uh, we had responses, uh, just, uh, we had responses from Mastodon, which is where you're probably going to be finding us more uh, from now on. We are probably going to be shutting down the Twitter pages, so do keep an eye out for the new links and things in the description. But for now, I did get some feedback from Twitter, which we'll go into uh, as well. Uh, but we'll start from uh, the Mastodon page that I put out the response because I've got a few more there. Uh, so, again, Sacred Chalice of Ricks, that's Rick Everson, who joined us on the very first episode, uh, says, um, it's a massive hit. It's an 80s movie with Star Trek characters, brilliant stuff, and a nice fun adventure to tie off the trilogy that had been pretty serious up to this point. To this day, I still get tense as they are flying in to get to George and Gracie before the whalers do. So, yeah, I think uh, that kind of relates to what Adrienne was saying about her favorite moment as well. Um, at OG Trekker at Trekkies.social says, I loved it. It's the best of the three, in my opinion. Um, at O Alex Simmons at socialclub.nyc says, As long as we're calling it the right title, and he's not going to be friends with us because he's put a little uh, meme that just says it's called The Voyage Home, not the one with the whales. <laughs> Have fun, guys. Just go with it. If you can't beat him, join him. That's what I've just realized. <laughs> Um, let's see, at Schmaltz at mastodon.online says, anyone who doesn't like this has definitely did too much LDS. <laughs> like. <laughs> um, at leopardboy at netmonkey.xyz just says, definitely a hit. I was nine or 10 when I first saw it and I liked it because I liked all the Star Trek films at that point in my life. But as I've gotten older, I've come to really appreciate it. It's a great comedy, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, at Alex Medina Bright at nerdculture.de says, Hit, it's my favorite of the original series movies. At Punk on Bus 1701 at 10forward.social, great handle. Says, that is uh, fantastic. I know, right? Uh, definitely a hit. I can genuinely say that I've never spoken to even one Trekkie that thinks it's a bad movie. I don't think I have either. So, yeah, fair enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, right. And then, so, yeah, going over to Twitter then, uh, whilst we still have it. <laughs> um, at Sorry, Byron Bailey just says big hit and then left a little Vulcan salute emoji. Uh, By Riker's Beard says hit, huge hit, one of the best Trek films of any era. Might have brought more new fans in than any other. Uh, Phasers are fun, brackets Phil, says hit for sure. Uh, Clockwork Demon says that's not a legitimate question. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's it. That's all of the feedback that we had uh, from the uh, various social medias on this. So... Yeah, uh, without any further ado, we're going to jump into our conclusions and our scores out of five. That's five. Analysis. What about my performance? I'm not a drama critic. Um, I may as well start with Adrienne's because it's very short, so, you know, why not? Uh, so, her conclusion is just, um, the humour is wonderful. Uh, and that's it. <laughs> that's all she gave me to oh. go with. Um, and then she said that she would score it four out of five. So four stars out of five. Uh, so that was her score for this. Um, Stephen, we'll go to you next. Do you want to give your conclusion and score? Hmm. Scores can be tough. 
Um, conclusion, like, yeah, really enjoyable. I'm trying to think where it came in the top 10, actually, when we did that. Do you recall? Oh, I can't remember now. And I just I put this out. <laughs> I think it came in the top five. Yeah, yeah. certainly. Um, not my favourite, but certainly a, a, you're one of the, the better movies out of the, the, the bunch, really. Um, I think I've put it before. Calm or not? No, I think Calm Game. Third. I think it was third for me. Um, but yeah, really enjoyable. And yeah, it was a nice, nice change of pace, as you just mentioned, really, considering the previous ones were quite dark with a lot of death and, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, and score, um, we'll go with three and a half. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> It's a little lower than I thought, but uh, yeah. Any reason why you don't you wouldn't go any higher then? Not particularly. I just didn't feel like you're in the four. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't hit you in that way, it doesn't hit you. That makes sense. That's, that's well, cool. it's my third uh, out of the three. You know, I think I've mentioned yeah. four. Um, Star Trek Six is my favourite. Rafa Khan, and then you know, my third would probably be Star Trek Four. So. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, I found the top ten, and Star Trek Four actually came fourth overall when we ranked them uh, mm. it goes wrath of khan undiscovered country first contact then voyage home then inexplicably star trek 09 coming in fifth what were you guys drinking <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> anyway um right dk do you want to give us your conclusion and score then yeah i've got uh, <clears throat> a genre christian joy that manages to take the third part in a trilogy and not only make it accessible to those that haven't been part of the last two, but make it a fun gateway into the franchise itself. It takes the very best of Trek, high sci-fi concepts, moral quandaries and human relationships, and wraps them up in a time travel fish-out-of-water comedy that not only satisfies the most avid of Trekkers, but appeals to non-fans too. The performances are pitch perfect, and despite their self-deprecating aspects, it never undermines the characters themselves. It's not just a group of people, it's a family, and nowhere is this more apparent than in this. It fits so much into its two-hour runtime, and yet it's so well done that for the most part you don't even notice with it going by in a flash. At the end, you're just left with a warm glow in your heart and a smile on your face. It's a cinematic Star Trek miracle, and for that alone, The Voyage Home deserves all the praise it gets and more, and I've given it 4.5. Okay, cool, that's fair enough. Um... Uh, so yeah, uh, I, I do. I will say this this time around was the only time that I was paying attention just to see how it was kind of structured, and it was kind of shocking to me that they don't arrive back in the 1980s until about 45 minutes into the movie. Like, there's a lot of time devoted to the setup, which I don't think feels like that it's dragging its heels before it gets to the no. point. Um, mm. So yeah, that you saying that for sure. Um, so my conclusion, then sorry if it's a bit long. I just put it's a movie that could only work as the fourth in the franchise. And after so much time with these characters and in this world, it uses that familiarity to make a film that is at its core a character piece for almost a whole ensemble, poor Sulu, uh, allowing for a sense of humor which doesn't take anything away and actually greatly benefits the characters, actors, and the film. It balances a plot that could seem preachy using the sincerity that's been well established in this fictional world and continues to be used perfectly here. 
I won't lie, the lack for most of the film of recognisable Starfleet future spaceship battles and the things that I personally gravitate towards does lose it a bit of shine in my eyes. But for what it is, I have to commend the ingenious plotting, the deftly handled tone, the effortless looking great acting and direction. It's also paced perfectly, something I just noticed on this rewatch, with the perfect time dedicated to setup, the missions that make the core plot in 1986 and the denouement. It has probably the most and best quotable lines in the franchise, and with its social message and ultimate optimism, it might be the most Trek-like. I enjoyed every minute, and not for the first time. Plus, it looks incredible. Uh, and I also gave it 4.5 out of 5. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good man. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, working out the average on that, then, by uh, adding all of those scores together and sharing it by 4, because we are including Adrienne's, uh, that gives Star Trek IV The Voyage Home a final score of... 4.125, but we'll 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 call it 4.12 out of five uh, for Star Trek for the Voyage Home, which I think is going to place it pretty high up on the leaderboard. Not top by any means, but uh, pretty high on the old time travel. It actually puts it in the bottom half. Wow, really? Ooh. Yeah, we must have been uh, you know, reviewing some very highly praised and regarded episodes. Then, in that case. Mm. But, uh, Wow, okay. 4.12 in the bottom half. We have to start watching some crap for this for the next series. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, do you want me to go through the leaderboard, seeing as it's the last one? Yeah, yeah. Can do, yeah. Okay, uh, with the uh, the bottom entry, to no one's surprise, being Assignment Earth from the original series, which scored yeah, a the bin. Sorry, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, just above that was, a, I think, a big disappointment for both me and you after so much time, Mike. And that was Little Green Men from Deep Space Nine at 3.3. Sorry, VR. <laughs> yeah. Uh, above that, which is quite a surprise considering that we both liked it, is, uh, well, myself and Will, was Future Tense from Enterprise at 3.75. I wasn't on that one, so yeah, I can't really be judged for that. <laughs> yeah. uh, above that is... Uh, I think it's yet to be broadcast, but by the time this comes out, obviously it will be. And that's the animated series as yesteryear at four. Oh wow! I thought that would have been higher, but yeah, okay. I, I yeah. think I brought the average down on that though because I made it three and a half out of five. I pulled the oh. Stephen on that one. <laughs> I think he will be disappointed. Yeah, exactly. If he, you know, if he was alive. <laughs> oh uh, gosh! Don't do that! <laughs> oh my God! What are you doing? <laughs> I don't feel well. <laughs> uh, and the next one on the list it's actually today's episode Star Trek for the Voyage Home with 4.12 did you say? 4.12 out of 5 well yeah, yeah. I guess 4.13 if you were rounding it up arguably but that's not going to make much difference is it? No, so. no. Uh, the next one on the list is Time's Arrow from Next Generation which comes in with 4.2 Is this? that's not really the bottom half this is more like the middle area here isn't it when you think no, I'm, I just divide it into two halves. We're in the top five now. What Next did one. um, what what did you say? Times arrow got sorry. Times arrow is four point two. Ah, okay. I thought you said four point one two. I was going to say same as Voyager, but yeah, 4.2. No, 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 4.2. Uh, you weren't on that one, one, so you can't be blamed for that either. <laughs> no, no. Uh, next one is Trials and Tribulations, Deep Space Nine, which comes in at four point two five. Well, and again, I wasn't on that one, so you've only got you and Runa to blame for that. Yeah, <laughs> Although that, is, that does a high placement, to be fair. That is a great episode. Yeah. yeah. The next one, we've got City on the Edge of Forever from original series at 4.3. Criminal that it's not number one. You guys are just have no taste, you and Will. <laughs> oh, stop it. You know I love it. 
he just he just what it, what it averages out. I honestly thought Boyd Home would have got higher. Uh, but yeah, anyway. same. I blame Stephen for that though. Three point five. Yeah. The number two spot is Timer Mock from Prodigy at four point five. Wow. Wow, number two. Yikes. Okay, cool. Considering that's the first Prodigy episode we've reviewed, that is a very good uh, a very good start. Incredible, yeah. Yeah, uh, number one, which I honestly thought today was going to dislodge it, but no, it's been unbeatable, is Deep Space Nine's The Visitor with 4.7. Wow. I did. I thought I was being like really harsh to that because I think I only gave it four, and you and Dom I think both went five. So that's why that's uh, coming out yeah. top. Which I don't think uh, a lot of people aren't going to disagree with. It's a well-known episode. I don't think it's as great as you guys do at times. And uh, I know certain people like Vian and such uh, also agree with me. It's not necessarily the five-star masterpiece, but it won the season. So congratulations, to the visitor and DS Nine for being officially apparently the best time travel episode. At least of the what eleven that we've looked at, ten. Sorry, yeah, we would we would have. You know, I'll reiterate that we would have looked at more had the guest situation not imploded. Yeah, but, we will uh, definitely. We will definitely do a follow-up kind of second uh, time travel related one because I'm also aware that the way things panned out, we did we way overly favoured DS9 and yet didn't really do anything from Voyager, which we've not done any Voyager, nothing from Discovery. So yeah. 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 Again, we did have plans because uh, at one point we were going to look at Future's End. We were going to look at Terra Firma from Discovery. We're going to look at Assimilation from uh, Star Trek Picard. But these plans all just fell through. So maybe look out for that if we do another follow-up series, which hopefully we will. But that won't be the next series because we already have that locked in. And we can officially announce here that we will be returning next year. We can't say exactly when, but it'll probably be uh, a few months. Uh, don't worry, there'll still probably be content coming out at least once a month in the meantime. But when we do return for Series 4, the theme of that series, DK, do you want to reveal it? <laughs> it's Klingons. It's the Klingons! <laughs> Everyone's favourite species. So, so Mike yeah. will get another chance to use his, uh, his graphics. <laughs> oh, I've, I've already got the hit or miss graphic ready for the uh, with the Klingon sort of logo and everything. So yeah, awesome. Uh, so yeah, do join us for that. And uh, if you do want to be a guest, again, by all means, get in touch with us. We are happy to try and accommodate, particularly if there is a, a Klingon-related episode that you want to look at. Just let us know. We can always try to uh, fit that in as well. I do have a list of about 11 that I want to look at, but I'm more than happy to change that if you specifically want to look at one that's not on the list and... Uh, Again, there's plenty to choose from because those pesky Klingons get around. So, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, if if you're curious, uh, maybe get chatting. What are some of the best and your favorite Klingon episodes? And we can sort of see that feedback. So that's great. And uh, yeah, in the meantime, then all that remains is to say um, thanks to Adrian for appearing uh, via in absentis, shall we say, and uh, leaving us a few notes and uh, contributing to the final score. Sorry again that you couldn't be here with us, uh, Adrian. You had to work, but. Again, we will definitely have you on next series because we know it's not your fault. And uh, on a slightly brighter note, welcome again. And uh, thanks again, Stephen, for, for coming and chatting all things Voyage Home, even if you did give it a criminally low score. <laughs> oh, maybe you guys are just giving them high scores. I don't know. I enjoyed it. I, I, I do not regret my scores. Though I had no, to Google the visitor to see exactly what episode it was. because it was Wow, like really? <laughs> I can see, I understand why you've given it a high score, but uh, uh, you mentioned some ones I would have definitely put higher in the rankings. 
Oh, I would I would have said the same personally, and I, I had this discussion when I was uh, when Vian was on reviewing Little Green Men. We said like we like it, but certainly I don't think it's the five star masterpiece that DK and uh, and Dom thought it was. But again, Dom had personal reasons, I guess, for that as well. So that's absolutely fair enough. And uh, it was it is very good. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, it's not even my favorite DS Nine. It's not even in my top five DS Nine. I don't think episodes, but you know, <laughs> time will tell, I guess. So yeah, thanks again, Stephen, for joining us uh, for this, and hopefully you will uh, join us again uh, do you have any particular klingon related things you wanted us to look at <laughs> oh i think well we've got the certain reference about blood wine that one has to be mentioned you want to look at the ds9 episode oh. apocalypse rising don't you? <laughs> oh of course not no. <laughs> i don't know how that episode became such like a, a running joke between us like in for like what decades now <laughs> yeah it's so weird. It's okay. between me and the blood wine but yeah. we're the warrior yeah, we're the warriors definitely an option. Yeah, we don't we don't want to go too heavily just on DS Nine though, because again we did that this series. So yeah, if uh, if anybody has any uh, from the other series, then that might be worth letting us know. It's not difficult for the original series because there's what like three or four Klingon episodes, so not going to be tough to choose from those. And uh, yeah, what about you, DK? Do you have anything in mind? Uh, I'm going with Day of the Dove. Oh, that was one I definitely want to do. So that'll be happening. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, yeah. So do join us for that. And in the meantime, like I said, uh, do follow us over on our sister podcast or possibly on this podcast. If you're hearing it on the Silver Screen channel, uh, we review movies over there all of the time and give various top 10 lists and stuff. Um, and if uh, if you're listening to this, we will be about to embark on our December busy period we're going to do an episode every week so you can tune in to see not only this review but also reviews of avatar uh, a top 10 disney movies episode and a christmas special review of gremlins with a special treat and uh, again both podcasts will be active uh, starting next year uh, where we may even have a surprise to announce uh, but do join us for uh, we're doing dk do you want to give the details on this we're doing a kind of uh, end of year wrap-up live special yeah. as well in the tradition of uh, Charlie Brooker's screen wipe or, you know, Clive James's end of the year review, if you're that old or, you know, film 80, whatever it is, we are going to try and have a Christmas slash New Year special. It's going to be a, a, a bit of a, how would you say, a step out of our normal comfort zone. We're actually going to yeah. do it live stream. So it's going to be me, Mike, Will, a bevy of guests. We're all probably going to be tanked up and making a fool of yourself. So be sure to join in. If, if, if nothing else, it'll be entertaining for a, it'll be all right on the night kind of vibe. <laughs> and what date and time will can people expect to, uh, to tune into that then? We're looking at the 29th of December, I believe. Uh, I don't, have we actually come up with an exact time as yet? Or are we going with the usual about seven GMT? Uh, we haven't really said, but yeah, I would assume probably six or seven GMT. Uh, and maybe go for a few a few hours, hopefully, if we get enough guests. But we are hopefully going to invite everyone that's been a guest on both podcasts to at least jump in, contribute, uh, you know, send us their thoughts, their favourite and least favourite films, TV, music, etc. of the year, make a little video if they fancy it. So, yeah. So, Stephen, <laughs> that's your task before the uh, before that Notice. comes out, if, if you don't mind. <laughs> What's that? Notice, yes. <laughs> yes, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Yeah, this, this is me informing you. So, yeah, uh, do tune in for that. And, yeah, in the meantime, uh, just remember that even though uh, this series is over for the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast, we remain Starfleet. Live long.
and prosper. <laughs> Live long and prosper. Bye. You have been listening to the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast, hosted by Michael Wilson and DK. Created, produced, and edited by Michael Wilson. Additional material produced by DK. Music by Timeless Journey. More information can be found at soundcloud.com forward slash timeless journey. The Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast is based on an idea by Michael Wilson and Will Templar. Follow the podcast on Twitter at HomeTrek, on Instagram at HomeStarTrekPodcast, or look for the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast under Facebook groups. Links to all our social media accounts and more are in this episode's description. This podcast is available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Silver Screen Hit or Miss Star Trek. This has been a Mike's Podcast production, copyright 2022. Thank you for listening.